Hey, yo, and here we go. Another episode of We Talk Comics. This is a special edition because we have an excellent guest uh, with us today. But first off, I want to introduce the regular hosts. I am, of course, the Crown Prince of Charisma, Mo. And with me is the, uh, the King of the Casters, Chief Defender of the Faith. He is Mr. Brett Podcast. I am happy to be here. Very happy. And and also, we have a man, 946 pounds, 8 foot 4 inches tall, only 1 foot shorter than than Jim Shooter. He is the man with no nickname, Chris. I haven't seen Black Panther, so no spoilers tonight, eh? You're the only uh, one on the planet. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> the movie's a phenomenon. And, and, you know, we have a very special guest with ourselves. I mean, that would be an excellent opening question. But first off, the tradition is actually for you to introduce yourself. So, sir, please tell everybody who you are and why you're awesome. Uh, well, I'm not exactly sure why I'm awesome, but my name is Arvell Jones, uh, also known, a.k.a. Arvell Malcolm Jones. Kind of dropped the Malcolm uh, because everybody was confusing me with Malcolm Jones, who's a different artist. Uh, I worked for Marvel in D.C. starting in the 70s. I started off as uh, Rich Buckler's assistant uh, on books like uh, Deathlock and the Black Panther uh, uh, jungle action featuring the Black Panther, and uh, sort of uh, ended his uh, being his assistant on the Fantastic Four uh, during his run. And uh, let me see, I worked on uh, Iron Fist and Iron Man. I was the Iron Artist at Marvel for a very short time before I moved over to DC. Uh, back then. Uh, 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 Marvel kept going through editorial changes. It was like almost a editorial roundtable uh, back then. So when I went over to DC, I started uh, working with Paul Levitz uh, and uh, E. Nelson Bridwell. I was working with with uh, uh, Jerry Conway on a book called Super Team Family, which uh, you know was a quarterly, you know, forty uh, page uh, story every couple of months. Uh, and then from there, uh, went back to Marvel, did a variety of, you know, of uh, fill-in issues, and then back over to D.C. and worked on All-Star Squadron with Roy Thomas, uh, coming behind Rich Buckler. Uh, uh, and that's maybe a little bit of a story. And then from there to Milestone, where uh, I worked on uh, Blood Syndicate for an issue and then uh, launched the Hardware series. I'm probably best known with Tony Isabella for creating uh, the character Misty Knight. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, I've done a lot of local television as uh, first a, uh, a, an artist that uh, back before the days of the camera being allowed in the courtroom, they used to hire sketch artists to go in and do sketches of, of, of the uh, convicted or the, well, not yet convicted criminals. So my assignment was to, uh, uh, to go in and do uh, sketches for serial killers for the most part, because our station was a little smaller and the only time they could afford to hire me is if it was a really big story. So every time they called me in, it was to draw a serial killer. You so. make it sound like there's serial killers there every other week. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wasn't getting that much work, but I used to hang around the station all the time and talk my way into a position. 
uh, working there. And, uh, you know, eventually they got so comfortable with me, they were letting me design, uh, you know, uh, sets for shows as well as billboards, TV guide ads, uh, news graphics, news animation, uh, you know, you name it. If it had to do vehicle graphics, if you had to name it for a local station, I was one of the guys that ended up doing most of that stuff. And then um, that led me to sort of, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, a crazy uh, career of uh, working as a producer for smaller shows. And then, oh, I got a chance to work on the uh, Superboy second season uh, show open. And, uh, they, you know, D.C. kept trying to get John Byrne, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, but, but my boss was, was in love with me from a friendship standpoint, I was, <laughs> from a friendship standpoint, you know, it was a she, but she, you know, but anyway, uh, <laughs> nice save. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, I got to do that and, uh, let me see, I've, I've done a bunch of amazing, you know, I, I think it was amazing things. You know, I got to uh, be the vice president of development for a small TV network called Colors TV, which existed from like 2000 to 2011, uh, where I met with all of the producers and, and worked to make their shows better shows on that network. And it was a, a basic, Colors was a basic channel on the Dish network. If anybody had uh, Dish, they were like the direct competitor. I think they're still around, the direct competitor to direct TV. Uh, uh, we were a basic channel. So, you know, when I started there, we were in uh, 13.1 million homes. And when I left, it was 19.7 million homes, you know, which I, I, I proudly think I had something to do with that. So that that's a little bit. Oh, and I guess I forgot. I did an Internet company, which went public back in 2000. But I had an idiot partner and uh, he decided that white powder in his nose was more fun than making millions of dollars. So uh, we, it, it took us five years to build the company up, and it took uh, about five months uh, for it to be torn down. And that period of time, I'd been in a, a car accident, and I had a, a severe back injury. So I, you know, I wasn't around to, uh, to intimidate him, so he just ran amok. So that was kind of rough. But, you know, I, I, I can still say, I created a, a, a company that went public and was traded on NASDAQ. Well, that's really cool. <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, that's a, like, that's, no. that's, and that's why you're awesome. Right there. <laughs> right there. Well, well yeah, how about that Black Panther, like, the, the, the cultural phenomenon? I mean, you're working on it. I mean, that character, you know, you're kind oh, of seeing know? it from very early days. Like, what do you think about this? I think it's going to be the first movie nominated, comic book movie nominated for an Academy Award for Best Picture. That's my prediction right now. Well, my, my mouth is, is dropped. But, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Everybody seems seems to be doing well. And I'll tell you another little secret about that. I actually worked on the Black Panther movie posters. Oh. Oh, wow. <laughs> cool. Yeah, it was a, uh, a gentleman by the name of Art Sims, who I went to high school with. And when I went to Marvel, he went to a record company. I, I think it was Sony or or Capital uh, or Columbia Records, which turned into Sony. And then he ended up at uh, Capital Records. Uh, he was an art director. He 
he was responsible for album covers. So he did Tebow Bryson's first first album cover and Angie Bofield's first album cover. And uh, and then somewhere along the way, he met Spike Lee and he did all of Spike Lee's movie posters. Every Spike Lee movie poster that was ever done, he did it. And he also did uh, the other big notable thing he did was he did Red Tails for uh, for uh, Spielberg, uh, George Lucas. Lucas, yeah, that's right. So, you know, after since we had known each other from high school, we used to draw next to each other, and he'd do his thing, and I'd do my thing, which my thing was comics, and his thing was almost everything else. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, so, when we got to the point of him getting the opportunity from Disney to do uh, the Black Panther, he called he called his old high school buddy up, and uh, I did all the preliminary drawings for everything related to the Black Panther himself. So everything that Chadwick Boseman had to pose for, I did all the preliminary drawings and then I got an opportunity to come back and supervise some of the retouching. And, uh, you know, so it was kind of fun. So um, there's a couple of posters. Some, and these were mainly posters with the, uh, um, the teaser posters. So uh, Black Panther or Chadwick Boseman sitting on the throne and Chadwick, uh, Chadwick Boseman standing... Uh, standing on top of the panther head, looking down on Wakanda. Yeah, those. Yeah, I got a little something to do with that. Me and about fifty other artists, I guess. Because <laughs> those things are, you know, you do the drawing and then they go do the shoots, and whoever the art director is on the shoot, you know, says, "Okay, we like that pose, so let's try it from this angle or that angle or whatever." So, you know, that's that's another thing. But the, but to answer your question, I think it was a phenomenal movie. One that I, I think has been a long time in coming. Uh, I'm not exactly surprised if people are thinking about making that the first, you know, uh, award-winning superhero movie um, because it is sort of different than than every other superhero movie that's come out. Um, and uh, I think the cast was great. I think Ryan Coogler was great, uh, and what he did. I got to read the script like a like almost a year ahead of time. It was killing me because I wanted to tell everybody, (laughs) (laughs) you know, as well as some of the artwork I did, some of the unreleased stuff I think is is great, too. But I can't show it to anybody. So, you Uh, know, (laughs) even us, Disney's mean like that. So, (laughs) yeah, they like torturing people. But, uh, no, I think that, uh, you know, know, I got a chance to see it. It was it was it was. it was everything that I thought it was going to be. And, you know, I thought that, you know, the way these scripts go, I figured that, you know, there were going to be some changes, but I wasn't really surprised by anything. The only thing they redacted from the script was the ending. And, uh, but they sent me concept drawings so I could look at the concept drawings and see what the ending was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I enjoyed that movie. Yeah. yeah. I'm guessing you can't tell us that either. <laughs> well, too well, bad. Nobody said they haven't seen the movie yet, so I'm not going to do any spoilers. Uh, I, uh, well, it's I another was, ending. <laughs> I was only joking. Oh, um, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, you were. Well, then you saw the ending. You I know, well, let's not spoil it for your listeners. You haven't seen. <laughs> that's it. all right. We'll do it off air. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Another question. Um, all right. Well, oh, Chris, you go. Yeah. Um, 
Black Panther's first uh, appearance in Jungle Action was number six. Was that the first issue you worked on with Black Panther, or worked on uh, professionally? I don't remember the numbering. Um, the, you know, I was like I said, Rich Buckler's assistant, so I was doing backgrounds and you know, you know, sometimes just drawing panel borders. <laughs> Whatever he asked me to do to help, you know, I was doing. I got to do the issue, I think it was called Malice by Midnight, um, which may have been the second or the third issue I worked on. Um, and uh, Don McGregor was the writer. And the, the last, I don't know, I haven't looked at the issue in a long time, but I want to say the last five, four or five pages I got to uh, pretty much do all the drawing because uh, Rich was going on a trip to Puerto Rico. And uh, he uh, he was going on a trip to Puerto Rico and he, uh, you know, he was trying to get ready. And he says, look, these pages got to be complete. And he was working on some uh, some other pages. He got his pages done. But while he was working on those, he was telling me, you know, I was saying, hey, you know, Rich, I got this laid out. What, you know, what do you want me to do next? He said, well, start drawing. Or he said, start penciling the background. So I said, okay. I said, I penciled in all the backgrounds. I left the big figures for you. He said, well, start drawing those. And I said, okay. You know, so I started drawing those. And then he went, uh, I said, well, Rich, uh, there's nothing left but maybe some details if you want to go back and do some some of your, you know, your hatching on it or whatever. He says, you know how to do my hatching. Do my hatching on it. So I looked up and I maybe drawn about four pages of it. And then I looked at him, I said, is this all right? You know, he says, he looked at it and he said, yeah, this is good enough. Go and slip it in John's desk. He never looks at the stuff anyway, uh, John being John reporting. And pick up my check and get back here as quickly as possible because I'm getting ready to leave. So, uh, uh, you know, so I went and, and went, to, uh, went to Marvel, took the train from, uh, I think we were in, um, in the Bronx at the time. Yep, we were in the Bronx at the time. And I took the train down and uh, rolled into uh, John Purporton's office. And he was sitting at his desk, which most of the time, whenever I went in there, he wasn't at his desk. And he said, you know, John was this big, imposing kind of guy. And he looked at me and said, uh, what are you doing here? And I said, uh, I'm delivering some pages for, for Rich. <laughs> you know, and he said, OK, let me look at him. I said, you want to look at him? <laughs> he said, hand them here. <laughs> so I handed him the pages. He studied them for a long time. You know, beads, of, I could feel the beads of sweat, you know, uh, going on my head because, you know, I, I kind of felt like, well, this is Rich's job. And I'm, I'm kind of, you know, did some of his work. It's like, you know, cheating on a, on a uh, on a uh, on a math test or something, you know that's the way I felt. And uh, so he looks the pages over. And he says, "Okay, okay, okay." Then he looked up at me and said, "Rich didn't do these pages, did he?" And you know, in my you know uh, nervous voice, because you know, uh, you know, like I said, John was a big mountain of a man. And even though he was sitting down, I think he was you know looking me dead in my eyes. You know, we were. You know, about the same height while he was sitting. <laughs> so I said, uh, he said, tell the truth. And I said, no, I, 
listening to him. I, I did him. <laughs> so he looked at him. He, he kind of nodded his head, opened his drawer where he keeps the new pages, uh, sat the pages in the drawer, closed the drawer, then went down to the next drawer, opened it, and handed me a script. <laughs> and uh, wow, it, yeah, and I went, wow. You know, he says, and I asked him, you know, I said, oh, thank you. I said, this is for me or give it to, to Rich. And he says, that's for you. You do that. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, you do it. And I said, okay, well, well, great. Thank you, sir. And I said, when do you need it? He said, I need it yesterday. <laughs> so I went, uh, thought about that for a second and realized that would be impossible. And then I asked him, <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I asked him, uh, you know, well, what do I, um, you know, what, when do you really need it? And he said, uh, he said, I really needed it two weeks ago. <laughs> so, so I'm standing there dumbfounded because I still don't know what I've got, what I'm dealing with. And he turned, the, he, he looked down and he was writing something, I guess, logging the pages. And he looked back up and he said, you still here? Why are you here? And I said, I, you know, I'm just trying to get a logical answer. He said, well, you're still standing here? Go draw some pages and get something back to me by tomorrow. <laughs> and, you know, so I left. So, you know, all happy and everything. I called Rich from the office. He picked up the phone. And I said, Rich, you'll never believe what happened. I just got some work. And Rich said, oh, really? He says, I'll see you when you get back. And I said, yeah, okay. And I'm all happy and you know, skipping down the hallways and uh, I get to, uh, you know, I get back to Brooklyn to his apartment, open the door and my bag is packed. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> I said, what's going on? He said, he says, well, you're a pro now, you know, you can, you can, you can, you know, carry your own weight. You can, you know, do your own stuff. And I said, but I've been working for you all summer long free. I don't have any money. <laughs> he says, ah, you know, go work it out, you know, go down to where Tony Isabella lives in that, that building, and, and they're used to seeing comic artists who are homeless. Go talk to them and maybe you know, call Tony up and you know, you'll find you'll figure it out. Don't worry, everybody does. And you know, and then I said, but Rich, and you know, as he's trying to close the door, and I'm going, Hey Rich, I don't have any pencils. You know, I got some Marvel paper. I don't have any pencils. He says, pencils? You know, he went back and got some pencils. And I said, but Rich, these are all wooden pencils. I I, I don't have a needed erase. I don't have erasers. I don't have a, a, a pencil sharpener. So he gave me the old pencil sharpener that he had when he was a kid and said, here's an electric pencil sharpener for you. And here's some erasers. And I'll see you later. When, you know, I, I got to catch a plane. So, <laughs> and, uh. I wandered around New York with my with my briefcase, with all of my clothes that I'd taken, you know, uh, to be up there for the summer and found the uh, the, the hotel and uh, got a room in the little flea bag joint un underneath. But uh, and from there, I, I proceeded to work on on my first set of pages, which was crazy. <laughs> See, now you just sold me a comic book. Do you remember what is used? Or what that was? What title was it? Um, seeing as how this happened to me twice, the one that, <laughs> <laughs> the, one that I the, the the story I stick to is it was uh, Marvel premiere featuring Iron Fist, 
with the first oh. issue being uh, uh, the first issue I worked on was uh, Batrock and Batrock's Brigade. <laughs> and uh, so it was pretty much Iron Fist battering, uh, battling the uh, Captain America uh, villain Batrock. I have to say I'm a little disappointed. I've read that issue. And, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't show, like, any quality problems considering you're homeless out on the street. with. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you were hoping that it was going to look oh, bad because I, he was homeless. When I look at it, it looks horrible. <laughs> you know, I didn't have a straight edge. I forgot to ask Rich for a ruler or, or something. I had no triangles. I didn't have a really, you know, a, a good way to, to even build perspective lines or anything like that, using marble paper as a straight edge, you know, to, to do things. I didn't have a drawing board, so I had to uh, reach up on the wall and pull a, uh, uh, pull the, uh, I guess it was a watercolor print off the wall, take the watercolor print out of the, uh, the frame, and I used the glass as a drawing table. <laughs> and I sat on the bed in this flea bag motel fighting roaches, and listening to the hookers have fun with the Johns next door. <laughs> Later, I, I, I told that story, and I think it might have been in Edmonton or somewhere. No, I told that story at some convention. Well, maybe it wasn't Edmonton. But uh, 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 Tony Isabella was listening to it, and he says, Why didn't you just call me? You could have you slept on my, uh, uh, you know, on my couch. He said, How did they even let you in? I said, Well, my dad had given me a diner's club card. And they let me guarantee the room with it. And I just had to draw as fast as I could so that Marvel would give me a paycheck. <laughs> and then I could pay them. So, you know, that's kind of how I did it. And he says, well, did you run into, I forgot the guy's name. You'd have to ask Tony. But he used some some name like, did you run into Rufus at all? And I said, well, who's Rufus? He says he, he normally wore a pink, uh, a pink, a uh, big, Big brim hat with a feather, you know, <laughs> and uh, he, you could, he could be found bossing the girls around. And Tony knew the girls' names. And, uh, <laughs> he said, "Yeah, he's a nice guy, you know." Um, he said, "You could have asked him for a favor." And I said, "You know, I didn't didn't know him, and the, you know, if he's the guy I'm thinking about, he was yelling at this one girl, making her cry, and you know, I didn't think much of him." And, you know, he says, ah, he's a nice guy. He's a pussycat, really. Yeah. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> so, you know, uh, but yeah, I was afraid of everything. I was like, you know, maybe I was 19 years old. And uh, uh, for the most part, uh, you know, experiencing New York on my own terms. Yeah, I'll say. <laughs> well, you know, wow. you, you brought up Rich Buckler and he passed away last year. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in May, it's almost a year now, isn't it? That he, that he passed away about ten months. Yeah, a month yeah, ago. Yeah, it was uh, last. Uh, yeah, last May. You know, in fact, I was at, uh, like, you know, a couple of months. Not even a couple of months. Uh, maybe a few weeks before then, I talked to Rich on the phone. Uh, we were uh, filming the uh, Robert Kirkman secret history of uh, of comics, mm-hmm. and the producers were saying. Hey, you know, we've flown to Detroit, you know, and, you know, it's you and uh, uh, you and Keith here. Why don't you bring Rich? I said, Rich lives in New York. <laughs> and he goes, 
well, we're going to New York next, so can you call him up and tell him we want to interview him too? And I called him up and I said, hey, Rich, you know, uh, Robert Kirkman's uh, production company is here in Detroit and they're coming to New York and they want to interview you for uh, this AMC series. And uh, Rich was like, oh, man, that sucks. He said, I'm not feeling too well. So I said, well, what's up? And he says, ah, you know, I'll tell you a little later on. I said, well, they're here. You want to at least speak to them? So he spoke to him for a little bit, and then they put me back on the phone with him. And he says, you know, when you get a chance, you know, uh, give me a call, and I'll let you know what's going on. And I go, okay, you know, Rich, you know, it's great. You know, I'll call you in a couple of days. He said, yeah, that'll probably work out better because, you know, I'm, I'm kind of tired, and I, maybe I'll get over a little bit of this before. So I thought he just had a cold or something. And then we went to this convention in St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, and that Saturday, while we were entering the uh, the floor, the organizers came up to me and Keith and told us he had passed away. And I and I had never gotten around to calling him because I just thought he just had a cold. And, you know, when he got a little better, you know, he would probably call me because we used to talk all the time. You know, I, I met Rich when I was like 16 years old. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, we were both in Detroit. Yeah, we actually got into an argument over. A, we were at a used bookstore. They didn't have comic book stores, but it was a used bookstore that had a bunch of uh, old comics. And I used to uh, be a uh, a sign painter for the for the bookstore owner, and he wouldn't pay me anything in money, but he would give me whatever I wanted in terms of books or something. So I get all my reference books and art books from there. And uh, and all I had to do was paint signs for him, for you know, to sit on the shelves or to do the specials and things like that. And so I came in on a Saturday, uh, you know, to see what was up. You know, um, Tom was his name, and you know, he just owed me, you know, he owed me some some uh, uh, some books. So I came in there to pick up my books, and uh, I had hidden a few of them away, and Rich had found them. And and I was going, what are you doing with those books? He said, I'm going to buy them. <laughs> and I was like, those books aren't for sale. He said, well, they're sitting up here in the back of this shelf. And there's nothing. <laughs> I said, I hid those books away. Those books weren't for sale. He says, well, there's nothing saying they weren't for sale. You should put them in a bag or put them behind the counter or something. And so we had a little argument over, you know, um, one of them was Private Strong, uh, <laughs> The Shield. The secret life of you know a private strong the shield. <laughs> that was so big. but but we got to be friends behind that. Well, that's that's funny. Uh, yeah, because you worked on a, you both worked on a on a well, like on the Detroit Triple Fanfare, oh, yeah. and stuff like that. Like you were really involved in that in that comic. Like, kind of what got you into the whole comic thing in the first place well i've told this story a million times but you know i'll tell it one more (laughs) (laughs) i'll I'll give you a more detailed origin this time um the origin of me being a comic book artist um uh what got me into it is um uh uh my father used to bring home he, he worked at ford motor company and when he came came home somewhere between where we live and the plant he would stop in somewhere and they sold comic books. So he would bring me and my brother some comics to read. And they were like usually Superman and Batman uh, that he would bring to us. And I was all into that until I went over to my cousin's house and he was showing me like the Avengers and X-Men and, and, and those characters. And I was going, what? 
you know, these guys are cool, you know. And so that got me into Jack Kirby and, and Stan Lee, you know, reading that stuff. I remember the, uh, the, the first issue of, of uh, Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos that I read. And it was uh, 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 a commentary, I guess, uh, uh, Nick Fury was, was saying to his, his buddies as Happy Sam was walking up. And he said, oh, here comes Happy Sam. And he's smiling. And, you know, and they were the way Stan wrote it was like, he's smiling like that's so unusual. And he says, he's smiling so much, it looks like his face is going to crack. And after that, I was done. You know, I was all into it. You know, that was my, you know, after that, you know, and my brother just started collecting all the Army comics he could get his hands on after looking at that Sergeant Fury. Um, But from there, you know, I started, you know, me and my, you know, me and my brother started drawing some of the characters, you know, like everybody else does, you know, copying out of the book and everything. And uh, from there, we, uh, you know, my dad, you know, I, I was also watching a lot of TV and I was a little black kid uh, in Detroit and everything that was on the air, anybody that looked like me looked like Amos and Andy or Rochester or, you know, Butterfly McQueen from, uh, uh, from, uh, gone with the wind, you know, and they were either buffoons, servants, or uh, or just stupid people. Step and fetch it back then, and I was sort of ashamed at seeing those people on television, and you know, and and sometimes in the movies. When I go to the movies with my dad, most of the TV shows, I mean, most of the movies that I would take a look at, uh, if it was a drama or something or a western. You know, most of the time, if a black man was in it, you can almost guarantee he was going to die by the end of the movie. You know, except for Sidney Poitier, everybody <laughs> else was going to die. You know, Woody Strobe or anybody else, they would all die in the, in the movie. And the message sort of was 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 sort of heartbreaking for me. Um, and so I said, well, I'm going to start drawing my own superheroes, my own characters. And but really what I want to do, Dad is I want to be a TV producer director. And my father looked at me, you know, uh, you know, very sternly and said, are you sure that's what you want to do? And I said, yeah. He says, okay, then let's go get you a film camera. Now this is back before the super (laughs) eights. This was just an eight millimeter camera. And uh, so he took me to this huge department store and I had the worst salesman in the world. That salesman uh, uh, got in front of my dad, and he says, you want the Super 8? He says, yeah. He says, this is a nice quality Bell & Howe, you know, Super 8. No, not Super 8, but 8 millimeter, no, eight millimeter camera. Uh, Super 8s hadn't come out yet. And, and then he said, uh, well, and my father pulled out his wallet, asked him how much, pulled his wallet out, and got ready to start counting money. And then the guy says, well, if you're going to get the camera, you're going to need a tripod. So... My father asked, how much is that? And the guy said, you know, whatever the amount was. And I looked at my father and said, Dad, I'm going to handhold it. I don't need a tripod right now. <laughs> so my dad said, okay. So he got ready to pay the guy again. And then the guy said, and, you know, with Super 8s, it's best if you use lights with those. So, the, you know, so how much are the lights? And the lights were insanely expensive is what I remember. And uh, my father was thinking about that and hedging. I said, Dad, I'm only going to shoot outdoors. You know, so you don't have to worry about lights. <laughs> I'm gonna shoot outdoors, and then then the guy said, "And you're gonna need a projector if you want to show what you've been doing." 
And I'm like, will you shut up? You know? (laughs) (laughs) And my father said, how much is the projector? And that was even more expensive than the lights or the camera. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, after he went through all of this, uh, uh, the last thing he said was, uh, and behind all of this, my father was struggling on keeping his wallet out. and, And he says, and then you can come back to us you know, uh, after you use up your five minutes of film, you can come back to us and get some more. We sell it by the foot. (laughs) (laughs) My father put his wallet back, took me home, put a pencil in front of me, some paper in front of me. He says, when you can do some stories uh, that other people will buy and show me that you can, you know, make money at this, then I'll buy you that stuff. So he threw a stack of comics, some some uh, some typing paper, and some number two uh, pencils with the pink erasers on the back, and I started you know creating comics with the idea I was going to get a film camera. Make a long story short, I kept doing that and doing that. He kept turning me down until finally I was working at Marvel in DC, and I went back home to Detroit and showed my father my books. I said these comics are being printed all over the world. And, several different languages and all of that. I said, I'm ready for my film camera now. And my <laughs> father said to me, well, now that you're making all this money, you can buy your own damn camera. <laughs> <laughs> and besides that, since you're here for the summer, you can pay me rent. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, your dad sounds like quite a character. <laughs> yeah, he was that. <laughs> what, what did he do for a living? Uh, he went from being, uh, you know, an electrician on the line at Ford Motor Company to being, uh, uh, a TV repairman. He decided to be an entrepreneur and become a TV repairman. So, uh, so it was kind of interesting, you know, I, I'd get home from school. My dad would, uh, uh, would be sitting there with the trunk open, you know, standing by the car or sitting by the car with, with the uh, radio playing. And as I walked up, he said, there you are. He said, I got another one for you. And these, these TVs had big tubes in them. So they were like heavy as I don't know what. So, <laughs> so I guess I got my, my uh, uh, you know, my strength from uh, carrying TVs up and down the stairs. We had to go up a flight of stairs to get into, the, you know, get into our house and then down a flight of stairs to the basement. Uh, to go to his workshop where he kept the TVs that he was bringing home. He also worked, you know, with a, uh, you know, a shop owner and, 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 you know, some, some people would donate their TVs and he would fix them and they would be resold in the shop. So, you know, and I was always the one or my brother or both of us in some cases were always the one hauling, you know, uh, uh, TVs back and forth. And these things weren't tiny. You know, I mean, there were no 40 inch screens, but, you know, uh, you know, there might be a 25 inch screen at the very most. Most of them were like 10 inch screens, but they'd have these elaborate cabinets around them. This, you know, this huge mahogany furniture that would weigh a ton, you know, because <laughs> everything was American made back then. <laughs> and that meant rem- that nothing broke. Well, things were certainly built to last back then, uh, more so than they are oh, now. Yeah. yeah, well, that was the concept of American-made back then, you know, is that it's built to last, you know. And the Japanese were starting to build things, and everything was rinky-dink, made out of tin and plastic. 
and everything that my father was bringing home was made, you know, was encased in, was encased in real wood, <laughs> making everything a lot heavier. <laughs> <laughs> so living in Detroit, like, did that influence your art in any way? Um, I would say that, you know, it, you know, living in Detroit, how do I put this? Living in Detroit was, um, was a challenge, but it wasn't so much for the art, you know, uh, you know, I enjoyed working on comics. I did murals. I did all kinds of stuff while I was, you know, while I was living in Detroit, uh, back growing up. And, uh, you know, so it informed some of my, my thinking, but uh, I rarely got to, since I was working in comics, most of the time I did one issue with Luke Cage. <laughs> and Luke Cage was, and everything else was based in New York. And, you know, it, you know um, most of the TV shows and everything, nothing kind of looked like Detroit. So, um, uh, you know, I just paid attention to the people. And I wasn't seeing people, even when I started in the 70s and the black exportation uh, movies started coming out. I didn't recognize the people that I was, you know, that I would go to the movies to see because everybody was uh, kind of exaggerated and everything. And I'm I'm in the Midwest, and everybody seemed like suburbia, you know, for the most part. You know, it was Ozzy and Harriet around my house. I had both a mom and a dad. I didn't I didn't relate to Good Times or Sanford and Son or anything like that. You know, so. Um, I just grew up like a normal American, you know, kind of guy, middle class. You know, my father had a business. My mother was a nurse, a registered nurse. Uh, you know, we went to uh, uh, at that time, the public school system was was fairly nice. The neighborhood I was in was diverse. Um, you know, so I did. I won't say it actually influenced me in that way, except that that's the way I wanted. You know, uh, when I created stuff, you know, I drew from that, uh, you know, drew from those experiences for the most part. Do you remember any of the characters you created back then? Oh, yeah, man. You know, I actually created Misty Knight. She had a different name, but uh, and I and I presented it to uh, to Tony Isabella. And then after about three or four days of me taking him back and forth to black exportation movies and and and, and, and talking to him about it, you know, he, he finally conceded that, you know, that would be a good sidekick for uh, for Iron Fist because he was saying, ah, man, I'm really tired of drawing Iron Fist saying the dragon whips his tail, uh, the turtle stomps his foot, you know, <laughs> and things like that while they're battling, you know, because if you look at any of the earlier dialogue, you know, Iron Fist pretty much in his head was a running, you know, running uh, color commentator for his fights because he didn't really have anybody to talk to. And nobody knew, what, you know, really who he was. He was the moment he landed back in, in New York. He was embroiled in a mystery, and he didn't have anybody really he was relating to. He was walking around in this, you know. I think from the issues that Gil Kane did and uh, uh, and Larry Hama, he never took his mask off. <laughs> so I was the first person to take his mask off <laughs> uh, at the end of uh, uh, at the end of our run, and. Uh, you know, and from there he was going to have friends, and one of them was going to be Misty Knight. Wow! So how is how how off how much is like 
the industry changed then? I mean, obviously it's changed a lot, but like from when you started kind of to to when you got a little bit out of it, like, you know, you said, you said that in some cases you wound up with, uh, you know, having to deal with people and it just got too difficult. So tell, tell me about that. Um, well, you know, my re- the thing that was going on at Marvel and DC at the time, mostly at Marvel when I was over there, was, uh, you know, it was this round table of editors. You know, one minute it was, it was Roy, and then Roy quit. Next minute it was Archie Goodwin, and then it was Lynn Ween. Then it was uh, 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 Jerry Conway. Then it was Marv Wolfman. You know, so you know every time I'd seem like I'd come in, and people say this happened over a six month period of time, but for me it seemed like it was every week. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, yeah. there was a new editor, and you know, and the editorial policies were changing. But uh, when I first landed, um, you know, in in New York, I, you know, I was actually part of a you know, nobody else likes talking about this. I don't know why. But uh, uh, before we went to New York, there was about 15 of, uh, 15 of us in fandom here in Detroit. And, uh, you know, we worked on fanzines. We went to conventions. We met on the weekends regularly. We made a pact that if one of us got in the comics, then we would all get in. And uh, so that out of that crew were, you know, some names you might remember, you know, besides Rich, who was the first one. It was Tom Orsakowski, who was the second. And Tom was a letterer. You know, he had lettered practically all our stuff for the most part. Uh, and that's how he got, you know, proficient enough to start working at Marvel. And uh, after Tony was uh, Jim Starlin. Uh, and then after Jim was Al Milgram. And uh, I guess, you know, when... Tom came up, you know, uh, you know, he was sort of directed by Rich where he should stay and everything. I think Tom said he was staying at the YMCA, he said, which wasn't the greatest place in New York. But he said he managed to get along because Tom was a long haired, you know, uh, you know, hippie type, you know, back then. You know, that's the. You know, yeah. And uh, Rich was you know, long. They're both real tall and skinny for the most part. And, you know. And, and hung out and, and to this day Ron if you I mean if you ever talk to uh, Tom he's like the coolest guy you know nothing ever ruffles, ruffles his feathers so oh, I'll just run over by a car damn bummer yeah. <laughs> <laughs> get up and wipe himself off and you know <laughs> I got some lettering I got to get done I go to the hospital <laughs> when I get time <laughs> but you're bleeding <laughs> You know, uh, and then Jim was like just out of the Navy. So he was like real serious about everything. He did everything with military uh, precision. Uh, and uh, 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 Al Milgram was a very uh, happy-go-lucky kind of guy. You know, he was just always upbeat on almost everything. And then uh, then after uh, Al, then I came up. And uh, when I secured work, I, you know, I called Keith Pollard and he came up. And then after Keith, there was like a, it was almost like there was enough of us uh, that established a beachhead in New York that we just started to invade after that because the rapid succession was Terry Austin, uh, Mike Nasser, uh, uh, Mike Vosberg, and uh, you know um, you know a few other people, um, uh, uh, Aubrey Bradford, my brother Desmond, 
Uh, and we just started coming up, up in droves after that. So we got to about 14 of us. And the, the 15th guy was a guy named uh, Mike Charsky, who could probably draw better than all of us together. You know, he is really amazing as an artist, but he wanted to be an illustrator. And he decided, ah, enough of that comic book stuff. That's all kid stuff. You know, you guys go ahead and have your little fun while I, while I work at these big ad agencies. <laughs> so practically all of us got in, though, you know, in one aspect or, or another. You know, Tim Design. I'm just keep thinking about names, you know, that happened during that period of time. So, uh, you know, but I would say that, um, you know, the big thing for us is, you know, and once we got up there, we were all familiar with criticizing our work. We didn't bite our tongue about what we had to say about one another's work for the most part. And I got used to that. You know, I got used to people tearing my, you know, not literally tearing my work up, but, you know, looking at my work and tearing it apart, you know, and telling me, you know, nobody would ever say, oh, man, you did that. You know, that was excellent, man. I love the way you did that. No, it would always be, man, what happened to that hand, man? Looks like it was in a, uh, put in a meat grinder. What did you do? You know, where are the bones? You know, so, uh, you know, I got used to that. So when I went to uh, to New York and got at Marvel, I figured, you know, this is how the professionals continue to get better. So somebody asked me, what do you think of this this work right here? And I tell them what I did, what I really thought. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Chris Claremont and Don McGregor, you know, they all would get sick of me because I would be pestering them about, you know, putting black characters in or, uh, you know, or how, especially with Don, how he treated the black characters. I mean, why does the Black Panther got to get beat up every issue? You know, you're always tearing his uniform in. Come on. You know, and you said, look, I forgot which one said it, but some somebody, I must have irritated them pretty badly because they, they turned to me and said, look, when you get your own comic, when you're writing your own comic, you can do whatever the hell you want to do, but leave me the F alone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, I might have fractured a few egos, you know, and and gave them, you know, some 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 hard uh, some hard criticism. But they asked me. <laughs> I guess that would have been in the the Marvel bullpen. Then is that that right? Like, there's so many. Did you spend time kind of in the Marvel bullpen as as kind of the it was you know marketed back in this day? I mean, everybody thinks of it as this crazy, wild, fun. Insane place, and that's how Marvel, you know, kind of presented it. Right. This, you know, you know, wacky characters and and uh, you know, practical jokes and all this stuff. That's kind of how they how they made it seem. But I don't know if that's reality or not. You know, to, there there was a point when I was there in the early seventies uh, where it was, you know, when I first got there, it was mainly a bunch of old guys working there, and uh, you know, it was uh, Frank Giacoya. And uh, Mike Esposito used to sit right next to each other. And I used to always like to go hang out with those guys because they'd always have jokes. You know, they'd be fun to work with. And Marie Severinsen, she was the head of coloring, and she was like everybody's mom. Yeah. So she was always good-natured, and, you know, you know, I, I, I kind of found her to be very much like what was depicted uh, then. And then there, were, there was, uh, uh, I can't remember Maury's last name, He's, he was an Asian uh, gentleman, but he worked on lettering and also production. And, you know, everybody's, you know, everybody respected him. And, you know, he would make a couple of little cracks and, 
Uh, and then it was John Reporton, who was the uh, production manager, who, you know, I mean, he must have been at least 6'8", uh, 300 pounds. And, you know, I, I remember uh, Rich getting mad at him one day and said, I would kick, you know, John's butt if he had one, because John, <laughs> John's pants went straight up to his back. And, you know, that little pocket where your butt is supposed to be, it was empty. <laughs> so uh so there was that and then don mcgregor was always you know um you know around he was either moaning you know about how they were treating him or he was having a good time with writing the stories he was writing and uh, uh tony isabella was in there as well you know he was working in the british department and you know so yeah everybody there was sort of a personality to it. Ed Hannigan was sort of a, a laid back hippie. You know, when I first met him and spent the summer with him at the end of the summer, he says, Hey man, you need a place to stay. And I was going, yeah, you know, rich kicked me out and everything. He was like, yeah, man. So, uh, you can stay in my joint. You know, I'm going to hitchhike to Michigan. And when I get, you know, I'm going to be gone for two weeks. So you can have two weeks in my joint. And when I get back, you know, you have to vacate. <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> So, you know, there were personalities uh, well, uh, then. And, that's you a know, good Ron Canadian, was, though. Hmm? That's a good Canadian. Yo. John Byrne, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, all these guys were, were kind of, uh, I mean, we did have a good time for a little while. When I first got there, uh, Rich commandeered an office uh, for freelancers. And he said, we are going to call this the freelancers room. And Saul Brodsky, who was the... Uh, you know, the, the boss over uh, over John Purporton, you know, kind of running production as well and and being um, a Stan's kind of hatchet guy, uh, he didn't have an objection. So Rich kind of took over, you know, he like busted in an office, you know, like broke in. It was locked. But nobody was using it. He managed to, you know, uh, bust in. He found the drawing board from somebody, you know, uh, uh, me and uh, uh, Klaus Jansen at the time was saying, Rich. Did you take somebody else's drawing board? Are they going to come in on Monday and find they don't have a they don't have a table anymore? <laughs> he said, you know, "Don't worry about it. You know, don't even let's just get it all set up." And we would hang out in there. Uh, Klaus was sort of this, you know, it was very early in his career. He didn't have the confidence that he has now. But back then, he was he was like a nervous nilly about every little line he drew, you know, every little line he inked, you know, and everything. So it was fun watching Rich. Coach Klaus in the inking, his, you know, inking his work on the Black Panther and on uh, and working with him on uh, Deathlock because uh, Klaus was just so nervous about uh, about working and uh, you know so yeah there was a lot of personality back then and it was building and building while I was there uh, between the time that I started as Rich's assistant and by the time I you know started working at uh, you know doing Iron Fist and Iron Man. Uh, it had reached kind of its crescendo. So, you know, I would say the Marvel bullpen was full of life all the time, you know, at least when I was there. And uh, when Rich, uh, when Keith came in as well. And my crescendo uh, for that period is when uh, I walked in the office one day um, and, uh, you know, went up to the front desk. I would always hang around and say hello to Josie, who was the receptionist. Beautiful, beautiful young lady. And, uh, you know, so I talked to her for a few minutes and the door would open. She was like, you know, I was like James Bond. She was money penny, right? 
Then <laughs> 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 she would get tired of me and buzz the door open so I'd go in, you know. And uh, the first thing he had to do was walk by the old man's uh, uh, office, which was uh, which sat behind his uh, his uh, secretary, who was another beautiful. I guess Flo Steinberg had left, so it was another beautiful uh, young lady that that sat back there. And then behind her was Stan's door, and behind Stan's door was Stan. And usually the door was open, and whenever you walked in, Stan was always facing the door. So it's like you can almost see everybody walking in and out for the most part. Now I'd wave at him and he never, he just wouldn't respond, but maybe it was because he was thinking of an idea or, or uh, maybe it was because he was on the phone talking or maybe he was listening to somebody else in his office who I couldn't see, or maybe he just didn't like me, but, <laughs> but he would never wave or anything. And then this one particular day I walk in, He's sitting at his desk. He's facing me. Uh, and, you know, I, I always waved in his direction. And he he stopped and he took a hard stare at me like, what are you doing here? You know, kind of thing. And I, I continued to walk down the hall. And then I heard some this voice behind me. And it was uh, it was Stan's voice. But I, I didn't recognize it at first. But I heard, you know, I said, I heard somebody say, who did this book? And uh, to the top of his lungs. And I said, gee, that sounds like Stan Lee. And he sounds mad. And he goes, <laughs> I want to know who did this book. And the people in front of me, you know, I was walking away from Stan. So, you know, people in front of me stopped and looked at Stan. And he, I guess he was holding the book up. And then uh, they pointed at me. So now I turned to the side, you know, kind of starting to turn around. This is all happening in slow motion as far as I'm concerned. If I, if I <laughs> film this, that's what it would be. It would be a slow motion turn. As I turned, the, the people in the offices had come to the doors, and they were pointing at me. And I said, what is going on? So then I turned all the way around, and the people that were directly behind me were partying like the, like the Red Sea and pointing at me. And then... Stan starts walking up, yelling, you know, who did this book? I want to know who did this book. And he's shaking the book, and I can't read it. I can't make out what it is. And it was probably a couple of weeks before I figured my uh, my first book was going to come out. And uh, what Stan had was what was called a, a make-ready. And this make-ready was, uh, uh, you know, pretty much a, a copy of the printed book that wouldn't be stapled and wouldn't have a cover on it. I guess it was a last minute check that Stan could look at. And uh, so he walks up to me because everybody's pointing at me. He said, did you do this book? Did you do this book? <laughs> and you know, my heart is in my throat at this point. I said, oh, Lord, I did my first book and this is going to be my last book, you know. And uh, and I go, I managed to say yes. And uh, so Stan pulled the book open so I could read, I could look at it. And yeah, I had my name on the you know, uh, on the on the splash page. I said, yeah, that's my book. He said, this book was spectacular. This book was <laughs> me and Jack Kirby when we were doing Captain America versus Batron. This book, it was, it was so exciting. I love the way you laid the panels out. It was, it was marvelous. It was exciting from page one to the last page of the book. You know, I really loved it. He shook my hand all vigorously and everything. And then he said, you know, Excelsior. You know? 
wow. and he said, "Give this man a no prize." He said, "Enough said," and he left. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my Marvel experience. Now I had been at the Marvel that I'd always read about, as far as I was concerned, and all of the uh, the people in the hallway applauded, you know, and then they went back to work. <laughs> so I really That's thought so it was cool. set up. But yeah, to me. It was like that in the beginning. And then when I went over to D.C., uh, I started working for them. And then uh, Rich was over there. And, you know, D.C. was all very, you know, Marvel, everybody was like hippies or, you know, renegade looking. There were only the old guys dressed in a button-down collar shirt. Everybody else was uh, in their sleeves rolled up. You know, all of the young guys were invading. So, you know, you had like, you know, Frank Brenner and Val Merrick and, you know, uh, uh, all these freelancers coming in, you know, people who hadn't shaved or slept in weeks trying to get their books in on time, you know, looking all kind of ways. And back then, Marvel used to pay twice a week. They paid on um, on Wednesdays and Fridays. So if you got your work in the, uh, the Wednesday before, then you could get paid the following Wednesday. And if you got your work in by Friday, you could get paid on Friday. And uh so people were coming in in all kinds of states of, of half awake and half asleep, you know, uh, bringing work in all the time. And uh, uh, so it was a fun place to hang out with. And then when you got to check, all of a sudden you weren't sleeping anymore. You wanted to go to the movies. Hey, let's go see Star Wars. You know, we would do that kind of thing uh, and go as a group and stuff like that, you know. And anytime pages were mailed in, the, uh, you know, the people in the bullpen would pull the pages out. Then they have to go make Xeroxes of it. And we freelancers would hang around the Xerox machine like it was a water cooler and watch the pages being copied and go, oh, man, look at this John Bissema page. And everybody would be looking at the front of it. And then there'd be people looking at the back of it because John used to, used to draw scribbles and, you know, and drawings all on the back, which were just as beautiful as what was happening up front on the, on the pages. So we would hover, hover around his pages and look at them. So it was, you know, just a fun time uh, uh, with all, you know, and, you know, and during the summertime, we got to play. We play baseball with different publishers, and the big rival was DC. So we would play with, with you know, play with DC. And one year I was on the Marvel team, and the next year I was on the DC team, and the following year I was on the Marvel team, and then the following year I was on the on the DC team. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, when I was on the Marvel, when I was on the Marvel or DC team, I wanted I wanted Bernie Wrightson to be on my team because he, you know, he could really play some baseball. <laughs> really? Yeah. Bernie, Bernie was, wow. Yeah. But uh and Mike Luda, you know, those are all good guys, you know. But uh when I went over to DC, it was like, you know, everybody's wearing white shirts and ties. And the offices were quiet. And you know, you get past the receptionist, you get past the receptionist and you walk in and it, it seemed like you were in a corporate office, you know, it was like, you know, um, the first time I went to go see Paul Levitz, he was sitting there with his tie on and and uh you know he would say, Good morning, Ariel, how you doing? I said, doing okay, man. And I showed him my work and he gave me an assignment. And then I'm I after I got the assignment, I said, Okay, I'm with, I'm I'm out over here at DC now. I'm gonna go hang out. And you know, I, I, I popped my head into Denny O'Neill's office and uh Denny was uh, was on the phone and he gave me such a scowl. That I never went in his office again. The entire time. <laughs> he gave me the look of death, you know, like, you know, if I, if the look could kill, 
that was the look he gave me. And and I avoided him ever since because that look was the, that was a horrible look that he gave me. <laughs> <laughs> I went into uh, Joe Orlando's office and he was, uh, you know, he was uh, at the time, you know, uh, DC's uh, creative director. And I walked in there after bringing my pages back, and uh, Paul looked at him and said, "Yeah, this looks good to me. Go show him over there to to, to Joe." And I said, show him the joke. He said, yeah, Joe needs something to do. You know, he's in here every day. <laughs> Give him something to do. Let him let him look at your page. So, you know, at this point, I had uh, gotten to the point where I kind of calmed down as far as uh, 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 giving critiques. And uh, and then when I sat down with Joe, Joe said, man, I mean, you're doing some really nice stuff. You know, when you learn how to draw, you're going to be really <laughs> something else. <laughs> I didn't feel bad. I heard the same thing from John Ramita. That didn't stop me. <laughs> Man, you just throw up. Every, every name you drop is a legend to me here. It's just like, <laughs> wow. That's so awesome. You know, interaction with these people. Oh, yeah. Joe, Joe pulled, reached, you know, reached by, you know, behind his desk, pulled out a big pad of tracing paper and said, you got a minute? And I said, I sat down. He said, have a seat. You got a minute? I said, uh, yeah. He said, good, because this is going to take a while. <laughs> and, uh, he closed his door and proceeded to lay you know these sheets of tracing on top of my work and then putting a piece of tape on it and then drawing on top of my work and he gave me the biggest drawing lesson you know one time drawing lesson that you know, I really appreciated it you know he just kind of went over how to make my faces a little more consistent and things like that and uh and so we, you know, we, you know, he sat and went through that and he poured time on, over my work. And I went back and made the corrections and brought it back. And I laid it on his desk, being all proud and everything. And he looked at the first page and I had a stack of maybe 10 pages. And uh, he looked at my first page. He says, you got it. And then handed it back to me. And I said, but, but then look at the rest of it. <laughs> he was like, ah, you're good. You know, <laughs> and, and, and left me. You know, but uh, uh, because Rich had arrived and a couple other people from Marvel, because they were shaking things up, uh, I looked up and Rich was back to his own shenanigans. He, he commandeered a space and uh, put a drawing board up. He said, this is the freelancer's room. And we all went, yeah! <laughs> and, they, and, uh, and those guys came out of their office and said, hey, 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 this is D.C. We're not wild over here. Calm down. Keep wow. quiet. Oh, we'll throw you out. <laughs> I, I just picture like this this crazy little little office area where where all where everybody else outside of it is completely wearing suits and ties, and then this one room <laughs> where it's just like you know palm trees and pink flamingos and like music blaring. Well, we couldn't have the music blaring, but everything else was going on. And, you know, one day I was yeah. there and. Um, you know, I, you know, since I had been critiqued so hard, I felt like I could say what I needed to say. So um, the first project I worked on was with, uh, um, you know, it was this Legion of Superhero story, and Bob Layton inked it. And Bob was fresh. He was new. He was exciting. His work looked like Wally Wood. And I liked Wally Wood. Um, you know, I was, you know, I, so when he brought brought the work in, I looked at it and I said, "Man, you know this is this is like Wally Wood. This is some great stuff, it's like Dan Atkins, Wally Wood kind of combination." 
and uh, very precise, very clean, uh, a little stiff. And, you know, my stuff was a little loosey-goosey. And, but Bob kind of, you know, tightened it up a little bit. And, you know, I looked at it and went, you know, this is pretty good, you know. But uh, I think you're a little too quiet for me, you know. And he said, what? And I said, you know, I mean, it's good work, you know. But you kind of took some, sucked some of the excitement out of my work. But I like what you did. And Bob got all mad at me and said, I can't believe you just said that to me. And he kind of waved. I said, well, Bob, don't go away. It hurt. I was just giving you my honest opinion. I still love you. And he was like, F you, man. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, little did I know I'd pay for that later. But <laughs> So when it was in printed and in color, and I got to see the make ready, and I saw Bob back in the office at D.C., I came up to him and made a point to him and said, Bob, this looks great, man. I was totally wrong. Man, this is really nice. I really like what you did. And Bob said, man, F you, man. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so then years later, he was like editor at Valiant. And I went over to Valiant, you know, and, you know, he took my took the meeting and sat me down and looked at my pages and everything and turned back to me. He says, you know, your work. Uh, you know, isn't fitting, you know, the brilliance of artwork that we're doing here at Valiant. I said, oh, come on, man. You're going to do me like that? He said, yep. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. We got to be friends later on. I mean, he was always cordial, and we always had a good time talking, but I knew I wasn't going to get any work out of him. I stopped oh, trying, you know. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's that's uh, every story is gold here. Orville, yeah. this is awesome. Uh, um, Chris, you had a, a a question. You had messaged us earlier. That, yeah, yeah. I was kind of curious. You drew three of the eighteen issues where Iron Man has a nose. Never drew the nose. You never drew the nose. No. John Romita was mad at me because he kept telling me. Man, how you put the Iron Man has a nose now? Do you know that? And, you know, and John's a nice guy, so he never gets mad at you. But that's the way he talked to me that day. <laughs> so why didn't you put the nose on him? You know who's got to put the nose on him? You don't put the nose on. You know who puts the nose on? And I said, uh, no, I said somebody in the bullpen. He said, no, me. I'm just sitting here doing all these noses. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's awesome. I, lo- I love the idea of like <laughs> I'm just going through drawing noses. <laughs> well, are are you aware of why the nose was put on put on for those eighteen issues? Uh, this is a story I was told, um, and I think it came from Lynn Wing, and that's that Stan came out one day and he was looking at a George for uh, not uh, a George Tusca page. And it was like a profile of Iron Man. And uh, uh, so Stan looks at it. And uh, I think uh, Marv Wolfman, I'll credit this to Marv Wolfman because I believe this is who he told me. It's been so long. Uh, uh, You know, so he's telling Marv Wolfman, you know, it looks like Iron Man needs a nose here. And uh, so then Marv put put out a statement, from now on, Iron Man has a nose. And and I guess John Romita designed the nose. 
which is like a little, you know, a little triangle with a slit. And, uh, and that was the directive. So we were doing that for however many issues. And then one day Stan comes back from California and looks at the, looks at the, uh, the, you know, the issues of Iron Man. He said, where the hell does this nose come from? <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, they said, well, well, Stan, you ordered the nose. You wanted the nose put on him. He said, no, 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 no. I, I didn't want a nose put on him. I was just saying that that particular drawing that George Tusker did didn't look like Tony Stark had a nose because the, the whole armor was just flat and it didn't look like it could fit a nose in that armor. There should oh, be no. some kind of bend in it. You know, I didn't say put a nose on it. That looks silly. Take it off. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so that's that's kind of the issue. And then all of a sudden the nose disappeared. And everybody was happier. Yeah. And you, because you, and especially John Romita, because it sounds like <laughs> nobody wanted to put that thing in. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I just it just looks silly. I I I I probably drew it once, looked at it and said, well, maybe I can improve on it. Sat there and probably drew it about three or four times and said, no, this is just not going to work. I'm not putting the nose in. Yeah, <laughs> and and then you know we get put on anyway, and then I would get told, you know, more than once. I, John John, I was walking by his office one day and he says, Arvell, you're killing me here. Where's the nose? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the noses were yeah, yeah I didn't I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I w- I didn't do noses on Iron Man. <laughs> the uh, uh, you mentioned your interview for the uh, Robert Kirkman Secret History Comics and that was great. It was a, a great little bunch of you know what was it six episodes or something. I mean it yeah. was awesome and um, and, and I did uh, it for probably two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it was an awesome two minutes. Like four hours, four hours. <laughs> well, and and the final issue or the final episode was was on milestone, and um, you know it was great too. It, what was kind of you know your experience at milestone? Did how much enthusiasm at the time did did you feel there was about milestone? What it was doing? Because I, I remember just because uh, we were here in Canada, and you know walking into a comic book store and going it was the art and the colors was what immediately stood out to us it's just having this different look that went made us go yeah we got to pick this up it's just just looks so original well you know i got started with milestone like the secret origin of milestone comics (laughs) that's a captain i love secret origins we're comic fans Years before Dwayne McDuffie, uh, Derek Dingo, uh, Michael Davis, and uh, Dennis Cowan got together to create Milestone, there was another group of artists and writers that wanted to do multicultural comics. They consisted of Trevor Von Eaton, Arvell Jones, I should have put me last, but you probably <laughs> uh, Keith Pollard, um, Aubrey Bradford, uh, and uh, uh, a writer that uh, nobody really remembers. He used to be the editor of Foom magazine, uh, Carl Skip Kirkland, and uh, and then we also talked to you know Don McGregor and a couple of other people about it. And we found a a small little publishing company 
that was publishing a, a, a black version of Archie comics and also was doing the series of black history comics or, uh, uh, you know, that they were putting out. And you could find them at Burger King and at the, uh, the drug stores all around. Uh, I can't remember the name of the company right now. But uh, uh, we, you know, one day I was at the drugstore and I found one of these, uh, you know, Archie Light comics and also found, uh, I think it was called Fast Freddy or something like that. I can't, you know, but, uh, and, and this history comic, and I said, who is this publisher? He's in New York. Let's go visit him. And, you know, Back then, we did everything the Detroit way. You know, we mobbed everybody. You know, we, just, <laughs> we would just show up in force. And usually everybody would agree with us when we showed up in force, you know. So we would show up in force and, and say, hey, who's doing these comics? And the guy, the publisher was, uh, a, you know, a uh, you know, black man out of, out of New York. And we said, we like what you're doing here, but you should draw. You should do some superheroes. And he was like, OK. To bring me back a superhero so we you know uh got together over about a week's period of time and produced uh you know some comics uh you know some some comics with you know for with, with black and minority superheroes and my assistant at the time was dennis cowan and so dennis got to sit around while he was doing backgrounds or you know I always had him doing backgrounds, but the way Dennis tells it, you know, he was sweeping the floors and getting coffee all day, you know, and I didn't drink coffee and I like my floors clean. So he was, must've been doing it for Keith, who was my roommate at the time <laughs> for Keith Pollard. And, <laughs> but, uh, you know, Dennis would sit on the couch and listen to us, you know, pontificate about how we were going to change the comic book industry by creating these characters. And that it was a popular time. For, uh, for, for blacks in comics because they were such a hit in the movie theaters, uh, you know, with Shaft and all that kind of stuff. So we created a number of characters, uh, took that over to Marvel. Well, first we took it to him, and he said, man, these are great. How much do you want, you know, to, to do this stuff? And we gave him what our Marvel page rates were. And he says, I can't pay that. So we said, okay, you know, he said, yeah, I need to help a brother out. So we said, okay, we'll help you out. We cut our prices in half. He says, are you crazy? That's still too expensive. <laughs> so, we, <laughs> so we were like, well, how much are you willing to pay? He said, why don't you let me publish them? And then if we make some money, I'll give you some money off the back end, which was unheard <laughs> of to us. You know, we, you know, we're like starving artists in New York. We're living in freaking New York, you know, <laughs> where... <laughs> Every, every, you know, every week we got to get pages in if we want to eat. We're actually working to eat. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Marvel wasn't paying that spectacular a rate or anything. You know, we were, you know, unfortunately, you know, fortunately enough that since both myself and Keith were working, you know, we were able to turn in enough pages so we could decide how much work we we're going to do that week. So if we wanted to pick up a couch, <laughs> to sit on in front of a TV, then we know we have to produce so many pages, you know, like three or four pages. I'll do three pages. You do three pages. That'll give us some food and a couch. <laughs> Is that your Keith Pollard impression? Uh, not exactly. But my Keith Pollard impression is more like, yeah, you know, we, yeah, we do pizza. 
was very, you know, buoyant. You know, he's like, yeah, you know, everything is, you know, cool. So anyway, <laughs> so, uh, you know, so we, we, we did that and we came back and we all discussed that frick it, we're going to take this over to Marvel. We took it over to Marvel and we were told almost immediately, look, nobody is buying black comics. You know, uh, you know, the market isn't ready for all of that. You know, we, we, we're doing the best we can do by keeping Luke Cage afloat. We tried to do black, uh, black Goliath and that thing died so fast. It wasn't even funny. You know, they're just not buying black comics. There's no market for it. And we said, yes, there is. I mean, I grew up in the market. You know, I mean, keep did. I mean, we know a number of people. This thing, you just have to push it you know, and, and stick with it and let the community find. They were like, nope. So we went back and, uh, uh, you know, put all our stuff down and said, okay, frick it. We're not going to do that anymore. And went back to just, you know, making money. <laughs> and... <laughs> And uh, we were all kind of dejected about the idea after, you know, getting ourselves all hyped up. And uh, but then, you know, what happened was we didn't realize the seed had been planted because all the time we were working on this stuff. Dennis was in the background, you know, doing backgrounds or, you know, erasing pages or whatever assistants do. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, And then uh, years later, he calls me up. And says, hey, R, you remember how you and Keith and Ron and Trevor were trying to launch a, a black comic book company? We were like, yeah. He says, well, you know, I remembered all that stuff you did. And I did it. I said, what? He said, yeah, I did it. We, we teamed up with DC Comics. And we deal. And I did it. And I said, you got to be kidding me. He said, yeah, yeah, I did it. I just want you to let you know, man. I said, oh, oh, can I can I work with you? Can I work for you, please? And he was like, <laughs> sure, you can, you know. Uh, so my first assignment was doing this this poster uh, for uh, uh, for, you know, for Milestone. And they were releasing four comics and they were going to have them encased in plastic. And you had to buy the comic in the plastic. But if you bought the comic in the plastic, then it came with a trading card. And a piece of this poster that I did, you had to buy all four comics to get the whole poster. And it was everybody in the Marvel and in the, in the Milestone universe, you know, was on this poster. And I was so excited. I worked on it for, you know, a week or two, you know, trying to get it as perfect as I could get it before sending it off and, uh, uh, and making the deadline. So I actually appeared in all the first issues <laughs> <laughs> of, the, of, of the comics and actually got to do a little trading card. But, uh, uh, you know, so I thought there would be this huge, huge reaction, which there was in the black community. I looked up in Dennis and Derek Dingo and uh, Michael Davis and, you know, and Dwayne were were on the cover of Black Enterprise magazine, which is like the black version of Fortune magazine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was like, wow, you know, look at these guys. And, you know, Dennis was doing... Um, uh, you know, liquor ads. You know, he's like being a model on a liquor ad. I said, what the heck? <laughs> 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 you know, and uh, I mean, it was like, great, you know, these guys are going around there, and Michael Davis was hyping up the crowd at every convention we went to. You know, we had these panel discussions, and you know, his panel discussions were my, probably the most lively of, you know, everybody was laughing, 
Michael Davis was sort of like the Eddie Murphy of, of, of comics at that time. You know, he would do this comedy routine and everybody else would just sit back and, and, and laugh while he, uh, while he did his routine, you know, but, uh, so it, it all, you know, uh, launched with a lot of excitement and everything. <clears throat> and then, uh, you know, over the course of the, you know, the next couple of years, things started to fall a, a little bit apart. Now, you know, I wasn't there for all of that, but, you know, every once in a while I take a trip to New York and go to the office and visit, uh, uh, visit those guys and get a, a state of the union kind of thing, you know, where was, where things were going. And I guess, uh, that first milestone was completely independent with their offices being on, uh, I think it was 24th street, uh, on the, uh, the east side of, of Manhattan, uh, right down the street from the school of visual arts. And, uh, uh, and then, you know, a few times later I came, they were, they were housed in, uh, you know, in, in a set of small offices, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, you know, in the DC, uh, in the DC headquarters. Um, and then I looked up and they no longer existed. <laughs> so, you know, it kind of, it kind of went the other way, but, but I asked Dwayne, uh, God rest his soul, uh, uh, back then, as things were starting to go downhill, I was asking Dwayne, well, what's the problem? You know, you guys are living the dream. Why are you all, why, why is your face all hang-dogged and everything and everything? He says, man, it's been an uphill battle with these races, man. I said, with the races? What the races doing? You know, with the holding, you know, they, they're pitching, uh, you know, crosses or something, you know, at, at, you know, at your doorstep or whatever. He says, man, the comic book stores in the South are refusing to carry us. Wow. And I said, you're kidding me. He says, no, man. He said, we do all, we do well throughout the Northern cities, but the, almost the entire South doesn't carry our comics. And uh, that's unbelievable. Yeah, I yeah, know it is. I mean, we're here in Canada. We got them, you know? Uh, yeah. Completely different market, like because they were good books and, and mm-hmm. just the idea. I never thought of that as like it never crossed my mind that would be wow, yeah, yep. that's amazing. <laughs> and that was before yeah. Trump was in power. <laughs> well, yeah, this was the 90s, so you know, at this point, we were thinking we were getting close to getting rid of all this racism and you know, Ku Klux Klanism and all these isms was going away, you know, people were. You know, heck, we had, you know, this was, uh, uh, you know, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and all, all that stuff was going on. And people, yeah. We had black people on the air that we could be proud of at this point, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, Bill Cosby, well, well, well yeah, Bill Cosby back then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, it was a great time, you know, in terms of we were seeing big progress being had. And the depiction, you know, the depictions of us were, were doing, uh, were, were, you know, much better. Now, a lot of the, the movies, you know, black movies sort of disappeared, except for Spike Lee movies. Uh, they kind of disappeared from the marketplace. But for the most part, it was a good time. You know, there were new black magazines and publications and, and, and you know, there would be a TV show here and there that would, you know, feature... Uh, Blair Underwood or Denzel Washington in it, you know, 
you know, being doctors and stuff like that. So, you know, it was a pretty good time. But, you know, in music, we were we were doing phenomenal. You know, Prince was was, you know, was rocking. And, uh, you know, we had, you know, uh, the, the Godfather of Soul doing his thing. And, you know, every every other aspect of pop culture was doing well, except the comic book industry. You know, at one point they had to pair uh, Luke Cage Power Man with Iron Fist just to keep the book going. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the Falcon never got his own book back then, you know, so there were there were some issues, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, for, you know, for my kids, you know, which I was mainly concerned with, you know, uh, at that time, because I was doing, um, you know, I wanted to do a black character and I got to do uh, blood syndicate and I killed tech nine, which everybody hated me for. And uh, <laughs> went to a convention and he said, that's the guy to kill tech nine. <laughs> I said, I'll just do it with Dwayne asked me to do. I didn't want to do it. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it was, it was a good time from there. And we were doing these tours and everything all doing the Northern cities and, um, you know, to introduce the comic shop owners to, to Milestone and and all of that it was great. But uh, the South was a different story. Wow. You know, so I, I have to wonder if it still would be because we don't know because, you know, quarter of a century later and just because mm-hmm. something failed once, uh, you know, <laughs> nobody's tried again. And uh, such a different market now. And, and, and like, the comic book industry is so different, but it's amazing. But, yeah, I, I do wonder. If that would still be an issue with you, I, I, I mean, who knows, right? Well, you know, we're about to find out because Milestone 2.0 is coming out. I hope it was so. Announced a couple of years ago at the San Diego Comic Con, yeah. And they've got the, a line of books that are coming, but when you think about it, there hasn't really been, you know, uh, a major comic book push for uh, for uh, 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 you know people of color comics you know, what I'd call it, you know, not minority, but people of color comic. Uh, uh, since, you know, you had uh, 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 Todd Johnson and Larry Stroman doing Tribe, which was, which was kind of cool, and they were starting to branch out and do other books. But, you know, they were, you know, Todd said it was really too much work back then. They had to work too hard to, mm-hmm. to get the kind of sales they were getting, even though they, they had better sales than Milestone did. But they were also doing a big outreach program and introducing, uh, you know, other communities other than the comic book community to the idea of comics. And that's a lot of work because now you're building market share, you know, off the grid, so to speak, you know. Uh, But to this day, uh, you know, and especially when my son, you know, was growing up, he was on, you know, in a little league team with, like, you know, almost, you know, in our neighborhood, there were like about 350 kids. I mean, there were enough kids to have like, you know, uh, 15 different uh, uh, baseball teams in the in the summer. <laughs> and and uh, and then also, uh, you know, in the little league, you know, also they had uh, soccer and everything and uh, in the little basketball league. So that was the neighborhood I grew up in back in Detroit. Uh, but if you wanted to buy a comic book, you had to drive 25 miles and go to the suburbs and look for a, a comic book specialty shop. You know, comics got to be like porn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, for real. I mean, you 
you know, you have to go to a specialty shop to see porn. You know, it's just not, you know, everywhere you can find it. And uh, and then there's a designated area, you know, for it. And if you don't know exactly where it is, you can't find it. You know, um, and uh, my son, you know, I would get a lot of books from both Marvel and DC. They would just send them to us uh, because I was working in the industry. But uh, and so my son always had an abundance of reading material, a bunch of comics to read. Uh, the libraries didn't carry comics. The schools pretty much banned them. You know, you had a comic book in school. What are you doing? You know, you know, it got confiscated by the teachers. So uh, I'd look up and after a baseball game with my with my son, the entire team would be in my backyard reading the stack of comic books that came that week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, is it still true that Detroit only has one comic book store? Well, still true. It just became true again. For a while, Detroit didn't have a comic book shop. Oh. You know? Now, you know, you're talking about something that probably, you know, uh, when that happened, when it first happened, Detroit was somewhere, in, you know, about the, uh, the, the fifth to the seventh largest city in, in the USA. And there were no comic book shops within the city of Detroit. Amazing. Yeah. And and now there is only one. It's in downtown Detroit. Uh, I'll give a shout out to the Vault of Midnight, uh, the guys that have a shop down there. Um, but outside of that, in the entire region, and if you go from one end of Detroit to the other, you're traveling on maybe close to... Uh, and, and regular traffic may be about uh, 30 to 40 minutes to get from one end of Detroit to the other. And to, to drive around the city, you're probably, you know, you're probably on the road for about two hours, if not a little bit more. So, you know, you're talking about wow. that kind of square footage and, and, and the population was in the millions and you still had to drive outside of the city to find a comic book shop. And again, you had to know where to go. (laughs) Yeah. So that's that's nuts. That's nuts. So when you think about that for a minute, you know, how much bigger would this industry be? If, uh, you know, if you could find them, like when I was a kid, I could ride to a place called uh, a sweet shop. That's what they call them back then when I was a kid. Now I'm talking about the sixties and, you know, uh, you know, around the time that, uh, you know, Martin Luther King was marching and all that stuff, you know. Uh, But you could ride maybe about three or four blocks on your bike or you could walk to a comic book shop or, you know, at the most I had to do because I used to hit them all. So the most I had to do was ride about 20 minutes to get to the furthest one, which was at a hobby shop, which, you know, they had model cars and, and, and they model race cars and all that kind of stuff there. And I would go to the hobby shop and they would have a, a line of comics. And the reason why you had to go around to all the comic shops, because not every comic shop back then had all the comics. So, <laughs> so you would end up going, and then you'd have to search the, the used bookstores to get the issues you missed. Um, but still they were kind of in abundance. You could go to almost any drugstore and there was a spinner rack, you know, where you can just, you know, walk in the door and mother would say, I'm going to go, go back here to the pharmacist, you hang around here and don't go anywhere. And she plant me in front of the comic book stand. And I would be there until she was ready to check out, you know, time would be suspended, 
we could have been in there all day. We could have walked in there at 9 a.m. and got out at, at 9 p.m. I wouldn't have known the difference because I was being entertained by looking at that stuff. Now, if you know, with my kids back in the day, you know, this is back in the in the 80s and 90s, you know, I'd take my kids in the car. We drive past the Toys R Us, you know, and go past the Barnes and Nobles and the uh, Borders bookstore, and then to this, you know, and then down a little, uh, little uh, two-lane highway and turn into a driveway. With a little neon sign that would say, "Hey, kids, comics." And you'd walk in, and the first thing you hit with is the aroma of old comics, which is. You know, mildew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we all know it. And you, you felt know, a little, you felt a little dirty, but excited by going in. Now they won't say "Hey, kids!" comics though, because the comics aren't made for the kids anymore. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you know, so we're not growing our market either. You know, I'll give you another story. I was, uh, you know, one uh, milestone was happening. I got a call from Dwayne McDuffie and he says, Hey, I got a call from these people. They, they, you know, they want you to come and, uh, and, and visit them. And, uh, you know, and I, I want you to represent us as uh, a milestone. And I said, Oh, okay, Dwayne, where do you want me to go? I said, Japan. Wow. <laughs> and I said, Japan, are you kidding me? He said, yeah, this guy, Fred shot is going to give you a call and he's going to ask you to go to Japan. And I said, uh, is this for real? Say, I talked to him. I don't know. I think so. So I sit around the phone waiting for it to ring. You know, you're looking at the phone and it's, you know, nothing happening. And then the moment I decide, hey, honey, I'm going to go, you know, get you that ice cream you want because she was pregnant at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and she says, oh, thank you. You know, go do that. And the moment I get ready to step out the door, the phone rings and she says, the call is the call is coming. It's coming. You know, it's like the plane. You know, anyway. <laughs> I rushed back to the phone. There's this guy named Fred Schott. He said, hey, I'm Fred Schott. Uh, did you talk to Dwayne McDuffie? I said, yeah. He said, yeah, we want to invite you to an all-expense paid trip to Japan. And I said, cool, why? He says, well, you know, we, <laughs> we value the art that you do, and we'd like to have you come out. And I go, okay. He said, you know, you guys in Japan are rock stars. And we would go, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, it's going to be like, you know, like the Beatles, you know, like the Beatles coming to. They said, what, what are you talking about? You know, and so I get on a plane. I arrive in Japan. They're picking us up. And so it's me and my wife. It's uh, Steve Lealoa and Trina Robbins. It's the legendary uh, Jerry Robinson and his wife, Greta. Um, and it's Sergio Aragonis and, uh, and his wife. And, and we look at each other and said, Hmm, this is an eclectic kind of group right here. And we look each other over and said, wait a minute. Hey, you're like, you know, Hispanic Sergio. <laughs> said, yeah, I am. <laughs> and, and Jerry, you're like, old. <laughs> yeah, I'm old. And, 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 and Steve, you're like a Hawaiian or something? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm like a hippie Hawaiian kind of guy. <laughs> and Trina was, and you're a woman. <laughs> he said, I think they just got a cross-section of, you know, of America here. You know. <laughs> Very not only are you old, you're white. You know? 
<laughs> I mean, you're really white, you know. So <laughs> hair is white, you know. So, <laughs> so um, uh, you know, we wait, and our interpreters come up, and uh, and and the, the Chinese, I mean, the Japanese representatives come up, and they they're talking to us in Japanese, and these these uh, uh, beautiful young ladies come and stand next to us, and. They, they pulls themselves right by us, you know, and, uh, you know, they're speaking Japanese. And then when they get done, then the, the little, uh, uh, girls sitting next to us are our interpreters. And they're saying, uh, we want to welcome you to Japan. Tessica Productions wants to welcome you to Japan. And we were like, what? Tessica Productions? He said, yes. You know, they are famous for Astro Boy. And we said, oh, wow. He says, yes, we will be doing a cultural exchange. And he says, okay, all right. Well, he says, but first, we get to know one another. So we go and drop our bags at a nice uh, hotel. And then for the next four days, all we do is party. You know, with, <laughs> you know folks are drinking sake. They're, they're messing with geisha girls. They're, you know, it's just, you know, I mean, you know, we're being the epitome of ugly Americans. You know, just having a good old time. And I don't drink. So <laughs> I didn't drink there either, but you know, but we were still having a great time. They were taking us around to, to the uh, temples, you know, and uh, you know, showing us where Godzilla's footprint was, you know, just all kinds of great stuff. <laughs> yeah, Godzilla stopped on my cousin right here. Oh. <laughs> you know, and uh, and then at the end of five days, they we woke up. We said, "Where are we going today?" He said, "We're just going over to the business hall." We wanted to vis visit the publishers and, and, and the animation houses. And we went up to Kyoto to Tessica Productions. Uh, you know, they got like a park, like like a smaller version of Disneyland. And so, you know, we went and did all of that. You know, it was great. And uh, so at the end of all of that, we uh, ended up sitting in this room. It was a smoke-filled room. It was like I can only equate it to looking at diplomats negotiating world peace or something. That's the way the room looked up. All the Japanese were smoking and, you know, all the Americans were giving that stuff up. That was a nasty habit. We had decided not to do it. We were trying to tell them not to do that. But they weren't listening. So anyway, we get in this room and this guy gets, you know, comes up to the front and our interpreter turns to us as he introduces himself and she tells us, this is the president of Bandai, you know, Bandai, you know, uh, you know, Power Rangers stuff, you know, and we were like just familiar with Power Rangers. This was like 1992 or 93 or 94, somewhere in there. And Power Rangers are just kind of so we kind of knew what that was because it was a little bit of a craze. And uh, so he gets up there and then he's talking to us and we're going, you know, we're listening to him. And it sounds like this. <laughs> And we're like, is he cursing at us? <laughs> and we're like, what the heck is going on? And so, uh, you know, uh, at the end of the time, the, we, we turn to our, uh, our interpreters, and they have this very calm, angel-like face. And they look at us, and they turn, and they're reading because they've been taking notes all this time. And he says, he wants to know why do you not grow your market? He said, you only make comic books for, you know, uh, 
with these, uh, you know, white uh, uh, spandex wearing superheroes. You have an obsession with that. And you make comics for nobody else. We here in Japan make comics for everybody. You can find them anywhere. And we want to know why you don't create more diverse comics. Why don't you, you know, do comics? We do comics for old people. We do comics for brides. We do comics for mothers, you know, expecting children. You know, uh, we do educational comics. We do porn comics. We do all kinds of stuff. You guys only do superheroes. What's wrong with you? And, you know, so our answer was, you know, we, we kind of huddled and came up with a response. And our response was, well, we only do what the publishers allow us to do. You know, that's what we do. We do what the publishers allow us to do. And uh, they want superheroes. We give them superheroes. And they said, you know, pretty much, you know, the response was, you guys are going out the world ass backwards. He said, in <laughs> Japan, it's the creators that decide the subject matter. It's the business people whose job it is to market the product that the artists come up with. And if the product doesn't, doesn't, doesn't sell, we drop it. If the product does sell, we, we turn it into graphic novels and we put it back on the shelf for prosperity. But the first set of comics we put out there are like printed on newsprint and they look like phone books. You know, they're like, you know, thick, you know, 500 page books or, or more. You know, they're like, you know, pretty big. And they have dozens of stories in them. People read them and then throw them in the garbage. And the best titles remain, uh, you know, the ones with the best response rate and that people want to see end up, uh, end up being preserved in graphic novels. And the rest of the stuff becomes junk. He said, but it's the artists, the creators, that make the decision on what is published. And we were like, oh, man, that sounds great, man. Can we work for you? No, you go back home and you make your people do this. He said, but we're only artists. You know, we're artists and writers. And, you know, they're not really going to listen to us. You know, we can make some suggestions and do some proposals. And they said, you do that. And if you don't, we'll be coming. <laughs> we like that. That sounds like they're going to try to take over, you know. But... <laughs> But sure enough, when I go to a Barnes and Noble here in uh, here in Detroit, I see aisles and aisles of uh, a manga, and I see uh, a couple of bookshelves of graphic novels. Yeah. <laughs> <From> a... <laughs> yeah. No, you're, yeah, it's 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 absolutely right. I mean, it's 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 really grown, like it's skyrocketed now. Right. Yeah. You did it to yourselves, guys. You gave them the opening. Right. And that, yeah. and they warned us. And we went back and told the publishers. You know, I went back and told Dwayne. He said, so what they say? And I told him, we got to grow our market and we got to do this and that. And he said, ah, it's Japanese. And, you know, they don't know <laughs> what's happening over here. You know, and, uh, you know, I, I you know, talked to Marvel and, he, ah, you know, Japanese. You know, Jim Shooter. Well, we know exactly what we're doing over here at Defiance. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, that was obvious. <laughs> All right, well, 
I think we've covered maybe one percent of the great stories you have. But, <laughs> <laughs> but well, you ask the stories, what man, I have to come up with, you know? Man, you're awesome. Like, thank you. <laughs> you've been you've been unbelievable, uh, Arvel. Like, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. I know the three of us. Uh, I messaged them and uh, just to make sure that we had no more questions. It's like we have a million questions, but you know, yeah, I don't feel like invite me back one day. Times. I, I, I would, yes, I would love definitely. it so much. You were just I didn't so even get great. to the dirt. <laughs> oh man, yeah. Well, and we want that at some point. But this was so much fun. Like, you're you're awesome. Um, we have uh, the thing we do here. We just give you a chance to, you know, if you have anything to plug, any conventions coming up or anything like that, uh, you know, uh, please let people know where they can find you. Um, you know, we're trying to come back to. Canada at some point or another. I think we're going to be at the Windsor Comic Con okay. uh, this year. Uh, I don't know exactly when it is. I don't have the dates in front of me. You guys should have warned me in advance. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to have to do these plugs. Um, I'm going to be at the Motor City Comic Con. Uh, I'm going to this new convention called the Universal Fan uh, uh, Fan Con in Baltimore, Maryland, and uh, I think that's in April. Uh, I'm going to be in all types of parts of Ohio, Kentucky, and maybe uh, Illinois. We're going to be in Arkansas at some convention, which name I don't know <laughs> uh, <laughs> this year. So I'm going to be traveling around a little bit. Uh, you know, I know we'll probably do the Windsor Comic Con, which is in Windsor, Ontario. And mm -hmm. I, uh, usually we try to do two conventions in in, uh, in Canada every year. Uh, uh, we did London last year, London, Ontario, last year. And it's been a couple of years since we, we've been promised that we would be invited to the Alberta uh, convention. But we haven't heard back from those people. And Edmonton promised to bring us back one day, but that hasn't happened either. So, uh, so I have no idea. In Canada We're gonna bug them time. about it. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're gonna bug them about it because yeah, because yeah. if you ever made it out here to Calgary, we'd certainly be uh, willing to take you for some uh, fine Canadian cuisine like poutine. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, I heard <laughs> about some about poutine. I don't know exactly what it is, but my wife says she wants to try it. What is it? It is uh, gravy, French fries, and cheese. And then from there, you go from there and get a little inventive. You are an assassin. <laughs> <laughs> I would literally die. I am a vegetarian. I've been a vegetarian since 1977. <laughs> well, then you if get all the fries. Smell, if I even smell something like that, I might throw up. <laughs> too bad. You're, well, then we'll just go with your episode of The Simpsons where they do that throw up thing all the time. It would be like that. <laughs> well, you know what? It's fine. We'll just take your wife. <laughs> yeah. She she says she wants to do that, but we'll see how brave she is. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank I you. don't know though. When she was in, she when we were in Japan, she stayed plastered. You know, <laughs> they kept filling her cup up and filling my cup, and then she would. Drink, drink her and then drink mine, you know. I was carrying her home every... I was carrying her back to the hotel every night. 
Awesome. <laughs> Again, we'll we'll find something if we can find something Canadian that doesn't have bacon in it. That's a little difficult. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, <laughs> I thought you guys were obsessed with curling. <laughs> Seal. Well, you know, we like our curling. That's true. Yeah. Well, thanks again, sir. This has been tremendous, and uh, I got to tell you, you also do an awesome uh, Stan Lee. It's actually a really good no. impression. Yes, <laughs> really good impression. How's your Sylvester Stallone? I'm just wondering if I could hear it. Uh Sylvester Stallone. Ooh, all I know is, you know, you know, Adrian. <laughs> you know, I, I. That's all I know. You know, is that you know, Paulie. You know, Adrian. Uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> Dead on. That's my- Dead on. Dead <laughs> on. <laughs> oh, man, the two of you together, it's just like, it's just impressions <laughs> left and right. Yeah. Oh, well, there's, there's, you, you haven't heard my Jack Kirby impression. He's oh. the other reason oh. why I got into comics, because Jack Kirby called my house when I was a kid what? and told me to get into comics. I, I mean that for real. <laughs> okay. Well, well, we need that. Yeah, we, and, and here we said we were done, but you got a story about the we, king. Who we need that story? We're in, we'll go out <laughs> on your story about the king. <laughs> okay. I was uh, publishing a fanzine along with my, my other Detroit mob crew. And uh, uh, a gentleman by the name of Greg Thixton, uh decided to pack my stuff and some of my drawings away into a an envelope and send it over to Marvel to get Stan, I mean, to get Jack Kirby to comment on it because I was a big Kirby fan. And, uh, you know, he said, I'm going to send this stuff off. And I was going, you're not really going to send my stuff off. To... He said, yeah, write a note. So I wrote a note. You know, hey, Jack, I'm your biggest fan, you know. Uh, would you tell me what you think of my stuff? And we, we included a copy of our fanzine. Uh, which was called Fan Informer. And it was a little bitty newsletter that uh, pretty much it started off as a newsletter, but it turned into a big, you know, art magazine because everybody that we were hanging out with were artists at the time. Uh, so, you know, we sent that off and, you know, with some original drawings of mine and we forgot about it. And one day my father comes into my little workspace that he had made up for me and me and Greg Thixton were sitting around talking and the phone rings and you know he bring he brings the phone to me and he says hey you got some guy on the phone named Jack who wants to speak to you so I said Jack I don't you know a Jack Greg said, uh, I don't know a Jack you know I don't know a Jack and I said well I'll pick up the phone see what it's about so I picked the phone up and he's and I'm hearing uh hey Arvell you know it's uh it's uh, Jack Kirby, you know, I'm going, what? He has a thick Brooklyn accent, which I can't, you know, I can't quite remember anymore. But, uh, and I said, Jack Kirby? No, nah, get out of, get out of here. He says, no, this is Jack Kirby. You know, uh, I'm just moving from, from Marvel over to DC Comics and we're about to launch a whole new line of comics. And then he tells me a little bit about the, you know, about Marvel's, I mean, about, uh, uh, Jack's fourth world and the new gods and everything. Oh, oh. oh wow. <laughs> and I'm going, really? And he goes, yeah. He says, I, I just mailed the package off to you. You should get it soon. I just wanted you to know that. And uh, I looked at your drawings and, you know, you, you've got some great ideas. You're 
is very dynamic. You know, of course, I need to learn how to draw, but he didn't say that. He's too much of a gentleman to say. <laughs> yeah, uh, but he told me, you know, your stuff looks your, looks really exciting. I like your storytelling. You you really understand comics. And I said, really? And he says, yeah, you know, I think, you know, when you get a chance that, you know, he asked me how old I was. And I told him, I think at the time I was 13 or 14 or something like that. He told me, when you get a little older, you should travel to New York and uh, go up to Marvel or DC and show them your work. Who knows? You might get work from them. And I was like, really? Yeah. And I hung up the phone and my dad says, well, who was that? So was Jack Kirby. And my father happened to know who Jack Kirby was because he was a big, incredible Hulk fan. You know, so he would look at the, the comics and everything and he would, you know, enjoy those. You know, so he said, Jack Kirby. I said, yeah, yeah he called me up. My father was all in after that. If I wanted to go to a comic convention, it didn't matter where he was driving me there. So, wow. <laughs> oh, yeah, That's Jack so Kirby, you know. So yeah, it was it was it was great. And I was going around, and I told Greg, and Greg was like, "That was Jack Kirby." He said, "No, it wasn't. Yes, it was. Why didn't you let me speak to him?" I said, "Because he was talking to me. He asked to speak to me. He didn't ask to speak to you." <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, should have put him on phone. Uh, you know, you should have let me hear. You know, I didn't have a speaker phone or anything. It was a wall phone, you know. Uh, <laughs> those old wall phones, old black wall phones, you know, <laughs> with a rotary dial. You know, it was like that. <laughs> and I said, that was Jack, and he told me that my work was pretty cool and I could go up and get work for Marvel. And he was all jealous and mad and everything. So he became Jack Kirby's assistant. <laughs> for a little while you know he was like all over jack kirby i was like good grief you know <laughs> doing That's jack's true. biography and all I, kinds you, of stuff did you did you ever meet him in person then and tell him the story or oh jack yeah jack came to to detroit to a comic book convention and i met him and Roz uh Roz kirby at the same time i walked in the door of the hotel where the convention was being held, and he was just standing there trying to figure out where he was going to go. You know, and I walked in the door, and I was like a, you know, a screaming teenager. Ah! <laughs> wow. And, you know, and he was like startled by me and then said, who is this little crazy black guy, you know? And, <laughs> and I go, you're Jack Kirby! <laughs> and he was like, uh, yeah, I know that. <laughs> Question is, who are you? <laughs> So I said, I'm the little guy you called up from Detroit a long time ago. You know, we were about to do the fourth world series and, you know, the new gods. And then you sent us a package and it had light ray, you know, and he was in a big splash page with his arms spread out, you know, riding some kind of infinity death machine. It was just cool. <laughs> and he said, breathe, son, breathe. <laughs> I just went all the way back to being a little kid and I had started working for Marvel and I told him, but yeah, I, you told me to go to Marvel and get, you know, like Stan Lee, you know, and, you know, Excelsior, you know, and it was great. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, well, I'm glad your dream came true. Man, my dream came true, you know, it was just great, man. You were my total inspiration and everything. You were like a god to me, you know, new gods. You are a new god to me, you know, it was just like. <laughs> he <laughs> he said, calm down. <laughs> you still have that package that was mailed to you? I was a kid, so you know when I moved ah, to New York, no. I left all my stuff. No, no, listen to me. I left <laughs> all my stuff within the care of my brother. 
My brother yeah. has it somewhere, but he says I'm not getting it back because I left it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, thank you very much once again, sir. Awesome stories. And uh, you're the best. If I, if I didn't tell you that yet. <laughs> well, thank you. Oh yeah, we totally. We're gonna. We are absolutely gonna invite you back on so that uh, so that we can hear some more stories. Cause oh, we love the stories. I gotta tell you. Yeah, I got some stories. I gotta see if I can even tell. <laughs> Go get some waivers, and we'll have you back on soon. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Arvel Jones, thank you so much for coming on, and we wish you all the best in the future and everything that you wind up doing. You sound like a a busy fellow, and. Uh, and and you have lots of great stories. Well, you know, I, the best I could do in the short time you asked me to come up with them. <laughs> if, if you if you could do uh, bad, wow, I can't imagine you doing better. Um, maybe maybe you can get me on when the next uh, Luke Cage comes out on Netflix because uh, they have oh, my yeah. character Luke uh, uh, Misty Knight in it. So, yeah, you know, I might yeah. have some comments there, you know. That'd so. be perfect. Yeah. That's but you, right, because I, yeah. I love the Luke Cage series. Yeah, so. I'm a Misty Knight, Luke Cage, all that stuff. It's also the stuff I grew up on and mm-hmm. characters I love, yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. We're, we're old guys, you know, we're like mid-40s, so we're not those oh. young punks you're talking to, so. <laughs> well, I don't know, I'm, I'm like in, in my 60s, so, you know. You know, you you guys are all whippersnappers to me. So. <laughs> I don't know if you but, saw. Uh, it's great to be a whippersnapper. You, saw me, you wouldn't say that. You, I mean, like, I'm, I'm pretty good at the like 100 meter sit. That's like my. <laughs> so. Okay. Well. Okay, then, guys. Thank you. Right. Thank you all once right. again. Come on, right. guys. Bye, bye.